and just in the privacy of our own heart to just again tell him how great he is. We bless you tonight, Father. We bless you. We bless you, Lord. You are so great. You have found a way to share your greatness with us. We are humbled. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all of the expressions of your grace that have just, in each of our lives, made up the last week, let alone overwhelming our sinful past and providing us with salvation. Thank you for your love for us, your commitment to us, Lord, your faithfulness to your word. We bless you tonight. And we ask that you would continue the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this room by speaking to us through your word. And Lord, how we never tire to be reminded as we turn to it that it is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. It's going to have the final say in everything. And we thank you for that, Lord. Bless us, teach us, continue to conform us into the image of Christ tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 26, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to finish up the book of Matthew tonight. Matthew 28. Did I say 26? All right, it's 28 then. We cannot afford uh, to go backwards in this particular journey. So chapter 28. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And you flag them down, they'll put a Bible in your hand, it'll be marked for our passage tonight. You'll be fairly lost and uh, without being able to read the Word and listen as well. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. We remember that Jesus in chapter 27, as we looked a couple of weeks ago, is in line with the account of Matthew. He has been crucified and died upon that cross. He's been buried and laid into the grave of a rich man, and a Roman guard has been placed around, it, uh, around that grave of Jesus at the request of the Jewish religious leaders concerned that the disciples might come in the middle of the night, steal Jesus' body away, and, uh, and then perpetuate upon human history the idea of his resurrection. And uh, in establishing that guard, uh, they forever and always um, have removed any idea that, uh, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if and when it did occur, ever occurred on the basis of the theft by the disciples. And now after the Sabbath, on the first, as the first day, that is Sunday, of the week began to dawn. All of these events occur as the sun is beginning to rise on that uh, beautiful spring morning in the Middle East. And as the sun is beginning to dawn, and surely uh, the appearance of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary here who is uh, listed here, they, uh, um, the mother of James, other women were told in the Gospels, uh, came with them as well, but Matthew focuses upon these two. And it is an expression of their love for him that they won't even let the sun hardly rise before they come to the tomb with the intent of 
anointing his body properly for burial. Uh, you remember he crucified uh, and then uh, wrapped up and put within the tomb, but not a proper burial, and they want to give him one that is worthy of him. And Mary Magdalene, of course, had the seven demons cast out of her. Imagine, I've never been demon-possessed. I've gone through a lot of things, but I've never been demon-possessed. And I've never been possessed by seven demons. Can you imagine you come into contact with Jesus and you are freed from that kind of bondage, oppression, into light, into life, into freedom in that kind of a way? Wow, what must have happened inside of her, uh, the love that she would have for the Lord as a result and the loyalty. And we see her continually all the way through Jesus' ministry. Oftentimes, even when the men have run in other directions, she stays there. And of course, as Jesus spoke about another woman in the Gospels, that uh, he who loves, uh, has been forgiven much, loves much, and he who's been forgiven little loves little. And she had been through a lot. She owed a transformed life to Jesus Christ and uh, any opportunity that she had to express it, uh, even in further anointing his body uh, for burial, uh, she was going uh, to do that. Now, they are misguided, uh, both the Marys that uh, come here to see the tomb. They did stay long enough when Jesus was buried by uh, Joseph of Arimathea and also by Nicodemus. They did take note of the tomb that he had been buried in, so they knew where that occurred. And so now here, uh, three days later, they arrive at the tomb that morning uh, to do that further anointing. It tells us uh, clearly that they, as well as the apostles, uh, did not uh, really grasp Jesus' telling them that he was going to rise from the dead. So they're not coming here early in order to witness a resurrection. It wasn't like everybody put their phones on alarm for three in the morning. We got to get over there. He said he's going to rise again on the third day, and we want to be a witness of that resurrection. That's not why they came. They came expecting to find a dead body. Interestingly enough that the disciples, the apostles, didn't even bother coming. The women did, but the men didn't. And they're hidden off somewhere in Jerusalem. I don't make fun of them, but it's the fact of the matter. They're afraid for their own safety. If the Jewish religious leaders were able to entice the Romans to the killing of Jesus, then surely uh, they'd find some way to round up the apostles and kill them next. And so they're hiding away. Nobody is, in this whole idea that the, the religious leaders gave uh, too much credit to the disciples, that they would even come up with a plan to steal the body. They were so far away uh, from all of that. Jesus' body was in no danger of being stolen if it hadn't been risen from the dead. And, uh, and so, though they do come as an expression of their love, uh, they are not expecting uh, what they're about to run into. And so you can imagine now, here they come, they're expecting very little, expecting a dead body, and then this is what uh, they come and uh, encounter. Uh, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So I've been through a couple of earthquakes before. You remember that one when the World Series? Okay, so you know, you go through these things and I don't know what a great earthquake is by biblical standards, but this is a great earthquake then occurs as they're there. And here's the reason for it. For an angel of the Lord descended from 
heaven and something about his descending from heaven. He's been dispatched to uh, perform this particular act, and it creates an earthquake. And he came, he rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. So this great stone that was rolled across the opening of uh, Jesus' tomb, he rolls it back, and then he sits on it. He makes a chair of it. This is effortless to him. You remember the women when they were coming, other gospels tells us they were coming to the tomb, and their great concern was, who's going to roll this stone away for us to further anoint uh, Jesus' body? And uh, here this gets taken uh, care of for them. As is uh, always noted and should always be noted, that the angel rolls the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but in order for others to become a witness of his resurrection. And uh, so uh, his countenance was like lightning, and speaking of the angels, so lightning, bright as can be, clothing as white as snow. If you've ever been on a sunny day out in a snowy environment and how bright that snow can be, this was the countenance and the clothing uh, of the angel. I think Pastor Allen brought out in his study uh, last Sunday morning talking about angels a little bit in the realm of of warfare and what happens in that realm. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, angels uh, did take on the appearance of a regular person. It would be, you know, they would look just like you and I might. And then other times they come in this kind of a form and to realize how awesome they are, to realize that as he brought out the warfare that is going on all around us all the time in this world and as Christians, and these are the agents, these are the beings that are are a part of that. And so this angel has the privilege here uh, of revealing to the world uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, so the, uh, when all of this occurs, as you might expect, the guards who had been put there sealed the, uh, you know, they had, had sealed the stone that was across the tomb. Uh, they, when this, all of this happened, they shook for fear of him. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in a situation where something hits you, you're in the middle of a situation that is so fearful, you begin to involuntarily shake. Just a show of hands, for my sake, just for here. Okay. All right, a lot of you, so you understand a little bit about what's happening here. This, they see this angelic being, they watch what he does, and then they begin to shake uncontrollably uh, in the environment. They're afraid of the angel. They've seen what he's done thus far, uh, but they don't know what he's going to do next. And they have this sneaky suspicion they're on the wrong side of whatever is going on here. And so they begin uh, to uh, shake in fear, and they became like dead men. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm not alive. I'm not alive. You know, they're just uh, thinking that they're not going to uh, survive it. Now, sometimes... You know, these were, this Roman guard, what, these were Navy SEALs of the day. 
And so, so often we look and we say, oh, there they've got their spear and they've got their shield and so forth and all of that. But these were the, these were the greatest warriors of that particular time in history. The same thing would occur if a guard had been put around Jesus' tomb today in such a way and you picture, you know, our Navy SEAL with Kevlar and the weaponry that they have and the night vision and the so forth, it would have wiped them out just as much. And uh, so here are these hardened, you know, soldiers, the best within uh, the Roman legions, and this is what uh, all of this produced within them. And then the angel answered, and he said to the women, and this is interesting, because the message uh, of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the first people that it came to were women. And now that doesn't seem terribly significant within our culture where uh, we uh, work very, very hard for the equality of the sexes and so forth and all, uh, but it was very significant in that day. Uh, A woman was not allowed to testify in a court of law because she was considered in that ancient world by virtue of simply being a woman untrustworthy in terms of the truth and uh, having uh, any kind of capacity to turn any kind of a case to the right or to the left. That was the attitude in the ancient world at that time toward women. It certainly wasn't the attitude of Jesus toward women, very involved in His ministry. And here, the message of the resurrection of Jesus comes to the women. We're going to see in just a moment that Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance is going to be to women as well. It's fascinating to me as as I watch our culture on a lot of different levels, and uh, so often now in our modern Western culture, it is uh, we're being Um, indoctrinated with the idea that Christianity is anti-women. And uh, and what the women's movement so often doesn't understand is what they owe as a foundation to Christianity. You look anywhere you want to around the world and look at the nations where there is has been an impact in terms of Christianity, a revival of some kind, or an awakening of some kind concerning uh, Jesus Christ and concerning Christianity, and look at the treatment of women in those cultures as opposed to other cultures in the world in which there is no Christian presence, there is no Christian history, and women are treated two entirely different ways. And one of the things that I think the women's movement, I mean the women's movement, I'm an expert on the women's movement, but if I could say uh, something to it, I think it's a very grave mistake to do what they're doing in pounding against Christianity as being something against women. Because if you, if you chip away at the foundation that has produced the kind of quality of life and equality such as it is and what's being worked on, you're chipping away at the foundation that has produced that 
within the culture. And if you want to remove God, you must move morality. And if you want to move morality, you're going to go to barbarism. And if you're going to go to barbarism, ultimately, you are going to go to might makes right, and you're going to go to the survival of the fittest and the strongest win, and then you go back all the way to uh, ancient times again in terms of the place of the women. It's, it is, it's folly to look at Christianity in some narrow soundbite kind of way and then now to be able to enjoy what Christianity and what Bible, the Bible teaches concerning all human beings, men and women alike, and then to begin to attack that and not realize you don't know what Christianity pulled all of us up out of and what we would return to without it. So that's the end of my uh, sociological section of uh, my sermon tonight. But it is very important to think about. It's a great mistake that is going on. Take all of the blessings, take all of the advantages, but realize how much is owed to Christianity and to Jesus Himself in this regard. And so he answered and he said to the women, verse 5, do not be afraid. So there, remember, they were not coming for a resurrection. They were coming for a dead body. So they were not prepared for what they're seeing. Why would he tell them don't be afraid unless they were afraid? But there's no mention of their knees knocking or shaking or anything. I don't know. Maybe they're looking better than our uh, Navy SEAL team from uh, Jerusalem. And then he says uh, to them, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. And he brings uh, them to the tomb that is there. The stone is rolled away, and they can investigate the emptiness of the tomb. Um, Karen and I have had the privilege of leading several trips to Israel, and sometimes um, people will ask, what's your favorite uh, site that you visit in Israel on a, on a trip like that? And the question ought to be, what is the second most favorite site? Because it's not fair for any place else that we visit in Israel to compete with uh, the garden tomb. And on that next to last day, usually when we are there, we go to the garden tomb, and there within eyesight, we are, we are there within eyesight of the three greatest events in human history, uh, the Calvary where Jesus died upon the cross for our sins, the garden tomb where he was buried, and then that garden tomb where he rose again from the dead. Nothing can compare with that. It is uh, amazing. And one of the joys for me, listen, the first time that I went, you know, there's a, like a line that forms because there's several groups coming from all over the world. It's great to go on a trip as a Christian to uh, to Israel, and you go to these different sites, and you've got Christians from every continent in the world. They're singing the same songs we're singing in their language and so forth. It's a little taste of heaven. But you get there, and there's only one tomb, and there's uh, probably two or three hundred people in various stages of either worshiping the Lord and maybe a Bible study, partaking of communion, and then going into the empty tomb. But we find our place in line, 
waiting to get in and go into that tomb the first time. I just fought right to the front. It was like I was at Walmart and uh, just got right up there and shift. I'm just kidding. I would never do that. But you wait your way. But having done that the first time, one of the blessings for me is to just find a bench somewhere and then just watch uh, the group that I get to lead one by one go in. They're in there for a few minutes, and they come out, and now they themselves are what the angel invited these women to be, and that is eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that empty tomb. And so he tells them, come and see where the Lord lay, past tense. He is no longer there. And then he instructs them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee where you will see him. Behold, I have uh, told you. And so he gives them that instruction. Uh, They're very, very uh, quick to obey that instruction. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear. And the whole idea is that it's just like, did you see what I I just saw? And I mean, there's the reverence for God, the reverence for holy things, and so forth. And they went out with great joy as well. And then this is beautiful. They had a running obedience related to the commandment. They ran to bring the disciples uh, this Word And so they went to uh, tell them that. And then uh, the disciples, and as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. And so here is the first uh, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus again to women. And then when he greets them, he greets them with a single word. And it's fascinating. It's the single word, rejoice. Rejoice. And, uh, and, and here they are, again, coming to that place, expecting to find a body, not expecting to see him raised from the dead, not because he hadn't told them over and over again that he would, but because of their own unbelief. And then they see him now, and here he is, risen from the dead, and he declares to them uh, uh, to uh, rejoice. That's his great word, his great one-word commentary concerning his resurrection. And that word rejoice, it means to rejoice, to be cheerful. It speaks of an internal sense of calm, of joy, and of being well off. Isn't that beautiful? That sense of feeling of being well off. And so he calls on them uh, to rejoice. That's his commentary concerning the resurrection. What I'd like us to do just for a moment uh, is, is we look at uh, this resurrection of Jesus, and as he gives us this word rejoice, to just stop and think about uh, a few things and reasons that we have to rejoice as Christians uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Sometimes we can just say, well, he rose from the dead, and I think it's really important because they talk about it a lot. But, um, but beyond that, I don't have the foggiest idea. But the implications of his resurrection are absolutely huge. And sometimes they get put into our mind, they get put into our spirit, 
And once they're there in our relationship with God, then when we sing the worship songs as the worship team leads us in worship, all of this, uh, all of this great stuff that has now impacted our understanding now can, can come out and, and having understand it more thoroughly, able to worship God and thank Him in a fuller way for what He's done in the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it declares Jesus to be the Son of God, uh, just as He claimed. It, it verified His claim to be divine, that is, to be God, uh, to be God in human flesh, the Son of God, and God the Son. And so Jesus continually in His public ministry, He continually claimed to be equal with the Father. He continually claimed uh, to be equal uh, with God the Father, and He claimed that the Father would one day raise Him from the dead in three days. And if Jesus was wrong concerning that claim of being equal with the Father, if that was an offense in any way to God at all, then all God would have to do is leave Him dead in the grave. And if his claim was true concerning his deity, then the resurrection would be the Father's way of substantiating that claim. And so the Father did in raising him from the dead. Holy Spirit put it this way through the Apostle Paul in Romans. And Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus' resurrection put heaven's verification upon Jesus' claims to be the Son of God and God the Son. Second, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals Him to be the promised Messiah. All of these Old Testament prophets spoke of the fact that uh, from God, that when the Messiah came, as He would be sent into the world by the Father, that uh, in order for Him to fulfill the prophecies concerning the Messiah, that it would necessi necessitate His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Isaiah 53 speaks continually uh, of His death uh, for our sins. Psalm 16, bless you by the way, uh, Psalm 16.10 then speaks of the fact that he would then uh, be raised again from the dead. And so his resurrection was required in order for us to recognize him as the Messiah. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus is important because it reveals that man can be justified through simple faith in Jesus. And to be justified before God means that he looks at me just as if I had never sinned. None of us, as we looked a little bit this morning, none of us has a righteous standing uh, before God on our own. And so how do we gain that kind of a standing? By putting our trust in Jesus, putting our faith in Him as the only Savior and the only salvation that pleases God. And when we trust in Jesus for forgiveness, then as we saw this morning, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is put to our account. And the resurrection is God's stamp of approval upon the fact that man is justified by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And here the Holy Spirit put it this way, again in Paul writing to the Romans, chapter 4, it, talking about righteousness by faith, shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead 
who was raised up because of our offenses, uh, who was delivered up, rather, because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. You wonder, how do I know that I'm justified, that God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned because of my faith in Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit tells us the resurrection from the dead. Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals that our faith uh, in Him for salvation and for forgiveness is not in vain. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain, but now Christ is risen from the dead. The resurrection reminds us that our faith in Christ is not in vain. Number five, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals to us His power and His victory over death. It provides us with a victory over death, and we need a victory over death. Death is marching straight on through human history as thoroughly and completely and uh, as outwardly victoriously as ever it has from the very beginning. But Peter wrote in his first epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mankind, the Bible teaches, is in need of a living hope. Christians have a living hope. What is a living hope? A living hope is a hope that has conquered death. It's a hope that lies beyond the reach of death, a hope that cannot be affected by death. And God has provided us with that quality of hope, that kind of confidence in the face of death. And He's done it through the death and the burial and the resurrection of His Son. And the reason that Jesus can offer everlasting life to us is because He has defeated death. And so he spoke not only authoritatively about life and about death, but then he proceeded to demonstrate his authority over death through his resurrection. What a wonderful thing to look at tonight and to realize death is a conquered enemy for me as a Christian because my God and my Savior has conquered death and exposed his authority, revealed it over death through his resurrection. Sixth, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals His power over hell and His victory over hell, His authority over hell. I like this uh, passage in Revelation chapter 1 where John writes concerning seeing Jesus in His uh, resurrected glory. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying to me, "'Do not be afraid.'" I'm the first and last. And he said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now, I like it when Jesus says amen. Amen means so be it. It means that's the truth. I am, uh, I was, uh, I am he who lives, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And then he says, I have the keys of Hades and death. And in the Bible, a key represents authority. 
When you have a key to a room, you have authority over that door, and you have authority over that room. And Jesus' resurrection reveals to us that he has authority over hell. He has authority uh, over uh, over uh, all of that and, and death itself as he speaks about it here. One of the things I liked as a kid when I was in elementary school, I liked to see the janitor. And back in then, now they have like master keys and maybe like a janitor has one or five, five keys or something. In those days, we had real janitors <laughs> with real keys. I mean, it looked like 50. Some of them would like have two of them on their side. And then they end up with all their vertebrae out. Here, how long have you been a janitor? Fifty years for the school district, you know. But those were some keys, impressed by those keys. And uh, they could go anywhere they wanted. They had authority over all the places that had locks that involved those keys. And Jesus has the keys uh, on his keychain uh, to death and to hell, and he has uh, conquered them, and he defeated both of them in his resurrection. Number seven, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it has provided us with a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father and who the Bible says ever lives to make intercession for us and is able to save to the uttermost. I don't know that there's a more comforting Maybe there is, and you could think of it, but I can hardly think of anything that is more comforting to the heart of a Christian in whatever circumstances we might be in than to realize that Jesus never ceases to pray for you, and He never ceases to intercede for you. Sometimes it can feel really quiet, can it? In a trial, he's teaching us faith and so forth. Job, for instance, in the Old Testament, man, what a mess he was in the middle of. It was quiet for a long time, but everything was under control. God was uh, teaching him faith and deepening his faith, and then I think providing an important lesson for us and all of God's people who would face uh, circumstances like his, his and even lesser circumstances to, for how to process that and how to view that. But here is this, this realization, he prays for you right now in this room, whatever you're in the middle of, he ever lives to make intercession for you. And it's a handy thing as well because the Bible teaches that you and I sin on a regular basis. Hopefully not willfully and that kind of a thing, but every one of us is short of being perfect every single day. And the Bible says that before that uh, scene in heaven, Satan still has access to uh, the throne room of God, and he comes up, and he, uh, he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before God of all of the sin that we ha have committed, and he's got an airtight case in terms of us being sinners. We are sinners, but Jesus lives then to intercede in that environment. He's our defense attorney, never loses a case there, and he just says, yes, Father, those charges are true about Damien. But for those sins, I died, and he has trusted in me, and my sacrifice for him continually cleanses him of sin. And what is true of me is also true of you. It, it, his resurrection has allowed him now to become the one who is our high priest, who never ceases to pray for us. And then eight, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals that we have been 
saved from the wrath uh, that is due to come upon our sin. I don't know about you and what kind of a background you come from. Um, some people come from a super, super, super sinful background, and they still got like the Harley uh, jackets in the closet maybe or something like that. And then other people, not so much like that. But they've got a conscience that's as tender as just about anything this side of heaven. And so the handful maybe of, you know, kind of big sins that they committed in the course of the early part of their life, it stings them as badly as, as anything else. And here, uh, as you think about, as I think about my sin and the wrath that it deserves, you say, you know, you say, well, how can we get a picture of that Calvary? <laughs> Calvary. That's the wrath. What Jesus partook of, what happened to him upon that cross, that's the wrath that my sin righteously deserved. And the resurrection of Jesus reveals that we've been saved from the wrath, that our sin was due. Paul put it this way to the Romans, much more than. Think about Paul as he considered his life and his past and rejoicing over this. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall, now, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, uh, we shall be saved by his life. That is his resurrection. And then finally, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it's the guarantee of our own future resurrection into heaven. You've got, you and I have got a resurrection that's going to occur in our future uh, as Christians. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee that we will one day be raised into heaven. Paul put it this way so perfectly, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, knowing that He, that is the Father, who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with him. So these wonderful considerations, how far-reaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ is out into Christianity, out into our theology, out into the, the daily and the practical of our lives, the intimacy of our devotion and our relationship with God. So important to know these things and to realize these are all ours because of his resurrection. Verse 11. Now, while they were uh, going, the women to, or, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 9. And so they came, when Jesus said rejoice, they held them by the feet, they're worshiping him and so forth. Jesus then said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee uh, where they uh, will uh, see me. And so uh, they then head off, and while they're going, behold, some of the guard came back into the city of uh, Jerusalem. They reported to the chief priests all of the things that had happened. And then the, and he came, there was this earthquake, and it was like a lightning. His face and his clothes like white, like snow, whatever snow is. Remember there in Israel. And, uh, and this is how bright. And then this, and we all started, our knees started to knock and the whole thing. And then he opened it up to reveal that Jesus is gone. And they bring the report of the resurrection. 
revelation to the chief priests, all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, the Jewish religious leaders, and consulted together, they then gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they told them, this is what we, we want you to be, your explanation of what happened. His disciples came at night, stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And so here you can imagine, put yourself in the, in the shoes of the Jewish religious leaders. The one thing they feared the most was that he would rise from the dead and they thought it a possibility. That's why they put the guard there. And then this happens, and now they realize he is risen from the dead. Now, if you're in their shoes, you've got to do one of two things. You have to either repent or you have to come up with some kind of an explanation. And they ought to have repented and recognized him for who he said that he was, but instead they came up with this tale, and it's a very uh, weak one as that is described there in Verse 13, uh, here's the explanation. Tell people that his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. The problem with being a part of a Roman guard and a Roman watch is that if you fell asleep while on that duty, it was a capital crime. So this confession that they're making here and being told to make by the Jewish religious leaders puts their life in jeopardy. But the, the, the Roman soldiers leave this environment of the Jewish religious leaders not with any kind of confidence in the uh, story that they've been given because it's a story that makes them worthy of capital punishment, of death. But where their confidence lie in the fact was the ability of these Jewish religious leaders to appease the Roman rulers if the word did come back to them and, uh, and uh, Pilate wanted to put them to death uh, by virtue of this explanation. And so this was the explanation that went, uh, went out, the bribe that they uh, were given. The problem with the story concerning the disciples stealing the body of Jesus is that uh, that kind of an explanation is completely inconsistent with the remaining lives of the apostles and of their martyrdoms. Every single one of them except John is going to die a martyr's death, uh, being faithful to declare the message of the gospel, declaring the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no one would spend the rest of their lives you think of the deprivation that they experienced, the persecution, the suffering that they experienced, and then ultimately dying a martyr's death. No one would do that for a lie. It's fascinating. Even the devil says that no one would uh, do that. Uh, he knows mankind well enough to know that the instinct for self-preservation runs so deep within us that nobody's going, we're going to put self-preservation above everything when push comes to shove. You remember when Satan came to God the second time in the book of Job chapter 2, and the Lord spoke to Satan and said, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. 
And then Satan said this in answer to the Lord. He said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. When you look at the disciples and how weak they were, how carnal they could be, argumentative they could be with one another concerning greatness, when you look at how they weren't even looking for the resurrection and so forth, and to think that these guys, these 11 guys are going to put together, come up with this hoax, go through a life that very nearly kills them in terms of hardship, and then ultimately to die martyr's death, you got the wrong 11 guys. It just doesn't add up. And so then uh, following this particular event, Jesus then, we're told, appears uh, to the disciples up uh, in the region of Galilee, and then the 11 disciples went away to Galilee, northern uh, region of Israel, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed uh, for them. Jesus met with them earlier uh, on the evening of this very day of his resurrection. Later, he would appear in an upper room in Jerusalem to Thomas, who missed the first uh, the first appearance of Jesus uh, on that, that night. But here he commands them to go up into Galilee, and he's got some things to say to them. So the eleven go up there. When they saw him, uh, they worshiped him, but some uh, doubted. Now, we're told here that the eleven uh, disciples were present, that is, the apostles. They worship the Lord. They rejoice at seeing Him once again up in the region of the Galilee. But we're also told that some who are present here, that they doubted. And my belief is that this uh, doesn't refer to the apostles in light of the fact that He'd already appeared to them, uh, but that, uh, it, it, that, that all of this occurred uh, in where Jesus is there, and he meets with the eleven, but the crowd is much larger than just the eleven, and, uh, and, and the disciples are probably accompanied by a much larger crowd, and it's probably that f above 500 brethren that Paul refers to in his letter uh, to the church at Corinth, and how after that uh, Paul wrote, he, that is Jesus, was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So you can imagine as they're there in the Galilee, here are the apostles. They are absolutely convinced of his resurrection. They have seen it, but now they're telling other people that haven't seen him resurrected yet. He is. They doubt it. Jesus uh, appears to them, and then they become eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And then Matthew's gospel closes here with a uh, Jesus giving to the disciples and to us what is known as the Great Commission. So he is going to ascend unto the Father shortly after this. This Great Commission is given uh, sometime between his resurrection and his ascension, and he basically tells them and us that we have work to do uh, between uh, his ascension and, and his leaving us uh, to return to heaven and then his coming back at his, his second coming. And here's the great commission that he gave. And Jesus said, uh, came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I think, in, and this is in the context of the great commission. We are so, um, in a, I think, in a dangerous way today in the United States. I don't know what we feel like as church leaders and even as churches to feel like 
Uh, we're f competing with the culture. We're competing with limited attention spans. We're competing with, um, you know, media that moves so quickly and, and how people, you know, everything's got to happen fast. It's got to be entertainment. It's got to be, this has got to flash over here, and then you've got to have the fog machine going over here, and then this, and, and everybody, I don't know what's going to happen next, you know. And, and, and sometimes we're f fighting with the culture on that. And sometimes we feel like we have to make the gospel powerful, that we have to create a mood, we have to create an environment, we have to create some kind of a, something that produces an, an emotion within the room and then to produce an emotional response. But we don't need to do that. And what Jesus is saying here in terms of all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth is that He rules over all. And it's important to realize that every single day, I don't care how hard-hearted they look on the outside, and I got them in my own family. I don't care what they look like on the outside. God is working related to every single person in this world to bring them to Christ the same way that He did with us. And that He is the one that gives power to the gospel, though we may never see it when we share it. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And as he made these various three missionary journeys, and he's preaching this gospel in every kind of environment and sin and distraction and debauchery and all, is that I've seen the power of the gospel, what God breaks through. And we can talk ourselves out of things within the culture and, and look and say, that it, it's, it's too indoctrinated, it's too secular, and, and uh, they've been indoctrinated against God and so forth, we'll never be able to penetrate. We're not doing this on our own. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We deliver the gospel. God makes it powerful, and God says amen to it in people's hearts, and He takes it from there. And so this, he begins this commission uh, with that uh, idea that, of giving us that kind of confidence. He will make our efforts uh, powerful. And then here is the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the whole focus of the Great Commission is to make disciples, make disciples. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. So this is more than just being a convert. Uh, evangelism is very, very important. That's how a person becomes a Christian, so that they can then become a disciple or a follower or grow into maturity as a Christian. And so the focus is now to make disciples of all the nations. And when Jesus says to make disciples of all of the nations, he's talking to a purely Jewish audience. Their minds just about explode probably. That God is interested in another group of people other than the Jews. He's going to make a kingdom. He's going to save people out of all nations. And we're to go and to reach the whole world in this desire to make disciples. And so that's the focus. That's the goal, the making of disciples. And there's three keys to it as it gives out here. 
And the first thing that he tells us is the necessity of going. And so there is the evangelism, proclaiming the truth about Jesus, sharing the gospel with people. It's very simple. Hey, listen, I've got an invitation for you from God. God declares that your sin has separated you from Him. And you're not going to make any sense out of life until you are engaged in the relationship that you've been created for. God loves you so much that He sent His own Son to die on the cross for your sins. And if you'll believe in Him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. God's invitation to you is the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, and to begin a relationship with Him right now. That's what He's offering you, not what I'm offering you. I could no more provide that to you than I could be the man in the moon. But that's what He offers to you. And so that's the offer that we make uh, to people, telling them, uh, to, about God's offer and encouraging them to put their faith in Him for the forgiveness of sins. It is important, and I think fascinating, to realize that the Greek verb translated go there in verse 19 is actually uh, not a command, but it is a present uh, participle. The idea is going. Uh, And here's a translation that has it just perfectly. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, disciple all the nations, baptizing them, and so forth. And what it speaks to very, very powerfully is lifestyle evangelism. Yes, evangelism involves missions. Evangelism involves uh, mass crusades in terms of evangelism. But just as important, it simply involves us sharing the truth about Jesus, anywhere and everywhere we go as Christians. And wherever we are in life, if we say, all right, I live where I live, I'm going to school where I'm going to school, I'm working where I'm working, and so forth, and I have the peace of God that I'm in His will, then that's my part of the mission field on on planet Earth. That's where I'm to be an influence in in that particular area. We don't have to go to the other side of the world in order to uh, help fulfill uh, the Great Commission. And so it's just as you go, as we go about in uh, the course of life, listening, listening to the Holy Spirit, His promptings, looking at things, and, and then sharing the gospel as, uh, as the opportunity is given uh, to us. So there's this need to go. It isn't that we put a sign out on Pellendale or someplace and we wait for them to come to us. We go to them. I remember one time I was in Israel, and, uh, the, uh, and there was a Jewish man that I was talking with, and uh, he, said, uh, he said, you know, as Jews, we don't have a great commission. And uh, so we just kind of go on our business being Jews, and, uh, and then whatever happens, happens. It's up to God for anybody to come to God, you know, through us. We don't feel compelled to share our faith with anyone else. And what he failed to realize is that uh, God had taken care of all of the heavy lifting related to the Jews being an influence in the Gentile world, in the ancient world, and that he put the Jews in the land of Israel, which is at the hub of three of the great continents in the world, Europe and Asia and Africa, everything that traveled north and south and east and west came through Israel. They didn't have to send the Jews around the world. The world came to them 
every single day then to be influenced by the God that they served. And so uh, God had done that for them, but here we are Christians scattered all around the world. They're not going to necessarily come to us, and so we go to them. The second thing about making disciples is baptizing them then in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, uh, there's three reasons to be water baptized as a Christian. Number one, to obey the command to be water baptized as it's laid out here. And then uh, number two, in order to profess Jesus publicly, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So it is to say to the whole world, to the entire angelic uh, realm, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I have chosen to do that, and I make it uh, public. The third reason for water baptism is to identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So when I take a person, I'm going to water baptize them, and I got them right here, and the water represents a grave. You can't do dirt. You can't baptize in dirt. So the water represents that. And I put somebody down underneath the water, and I keep it my discretion how long uh, they should be held under there in the light of what I judge to be their sinful past or not, you know, so they really get the image well. But you go down under the water, and what it represents is that's what our spiritual condition was. We were dead in our sins, unable to raise ourselves from that spiritually dead condition. And then when I raise them up out of the water, it represents the fact that God has raised us up out of our spiritually dead condition by virtue of our faith in Christ. But he has raised us up now, having made us a new creation in order to live not the old life that we once lived, but now to live a new life as a new creation in resurrection power. And baptism speaks all of those things to the person who is being water baptized. The third thing that he speaks about in making disciples is the importance of of teaching them, and not only teaching them as we're doing here tonight, but teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, all of the things that uh, they had heard, all of the teaching of Jesus. This they were to impart to others, uh, not that these uh, commandments were to be suggestions and so forth, but they were to observe them. They were to obey them, and uh, so we do the same. person becomes a Christian. You can't reach spiritual maturity independent of the Word of God being taught. This is what God wants. This is what He says. This is what we are to obey, and so forth, and then to obey that. That's how maturity occurs. And no one will become spiritually mature uh, independent uh, of that. I need to be born again, baptized, and then I need to grow in my understanding of the Word of God. And spiritual maturity, by the way, is defined by the ability to multiply myself. We think about, um, we, we judge physical maturity uh, being the ability to uh, replicate myself, to reproduce myself in terms of sexual activity. That means a person is physically mature to do that. A child of God, a Christian, is spiritually mature when we have the ability to take and to do for someone else what they have done for us. And that is to lead them 
uh, into salvation, to present the gospel to them, and then to pray with them to receive Christ, and then to begin to disciple them in the early stages of their Christian life. That is spiritual maturity, and that's the maturity that each of us uh, needs to attain to in our area of of the mission field. And then Jesus closes all of this by declaring, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And always from one end of the Bible to the other, when God speaks about His presence, I am with you, that always communicates the same thing. It is the guarantee of success. Now, think about the early church. I've got a clock up here. You'll be done in a moment, so I know where I am. Think about that early church. You've got 12 apostles left. You've got about 500 people maybe in Galilee. He gives them this commission. We're going to change the whole world, this little group of right here, that this is going to happen. There's no way we'll be snuffed out by the Jews in six weeks. And that's not what happened. And the reason that Christianity has filled the world and Christians exist everywhere in the world is because of this promise, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This this great commission is going to be successful and the importance for us to take our part in it. It isn't from some select group within Christianity All of us need to take our place. And whatever our gifting and our calling is and so forth, where he's placed us in the world and be a part of this making of disciples. Beautiful commission. And uh, Jesus leaves us, uh, you know, know, heaven isn't going to be sitting on a cloud and playing a harp and, and, uh, you know, eating bonbons for eternity or whatever uh, the conception of it might be in some people's minds. And in our waiting now for the return of the Lord, and so forth. This is what we're to be busy about, the Great Commission, and it is a Great Commission. It is a a commission that because of that commission that you and I became Christians. Again, I just recommend to every Christian, but certainly to every new Christian, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and realize the price that people paid by the millions to stay true to the gospel, to stay true to the Great Commission, so that one day in a little church in Napa, California in 1980, I could hear the gospel and I could settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in my life and put my trust completely in Jesus, and so that that same thing could happen for you. But becoming a Christian is both a privilege and a responsibility. And so we enjoy the privilege of it every day, but the responsibility is that we then seek the Lord to find our place in the Great Commission so that what happened in us can happen in others as well. We are debtors indeed, and what a joy it is uh, to be a part of that whole sequence of things uh, in our particular point of time in human history. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this gospel. 
according to Matthew. We thank you for the impact that, Jesus, you made upon Matthew's life, Levi's life. As he had thrown away all of Judaism, he'd thrown away all of religion as he saw all of the fakery and all of the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious system in his day, walking away from his his Levitical responsibilities and priestly responsibilities to become an absolute dregs of society and becoming a tax collector. Wanted nothing to do with God or anything to do with what was represented by what was before him in that day. And then that day came where he saw you, Jesus, and he heard your teaching And he realized that what he had seen all around him all the days of his growing up and what this was all really about and what God was really like were two entirely different things. We thank you tonight in this room from the individual place in our heart for what you did and where you went in order for a similar light, maybe from a different vein, to go on for us and to see how much we needed you and to be ready to receive the offer of salvation and then in receiving it to have everything changed for us. We bless you tonight. We bless you tonight, Father. We bless you tonight for the gospel. We bless you for the life that you have called us into. We bless you for being the God that you are. We bless you, Jesus, for how good you have been to us. We bless you, Holy Spirit, for your long work within our lives prior to becoming Christians. And then the power of your work and the firmness and gentleness of your work even after. Father, we bless you tonight as Christians for the privilege of being